Hi, this is Lauren Engel of Sidewalk Talk. We do a lot of interviews with EDM artists, pop artists, rappers, and people in the industry, letting you know what they do behind the scenes. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter through the handle Sidewalk Talk Show. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, and this is Lauren Engel of Sidewalk Talk Today. I'm here with Hotel Garuda. What's up? <laughs> My name is Asim, in case you didn't know. That was going on our Facebook, and I was trying to see when we met. Mm-hmm. 2014, I think. Or 2014. 13? I think it was four- 14. Uh, it might have I feel been. like it was 14 or 15, yeah. because it was like, I think it was the first time I, we played Slake when me and Chris played. Yeah, that was the um, first time. That was the first time. Yeah, that's also the first time I met uh, Sajib. Yeah. The same, that same weekend, like, I think we, we all... That was like the first time our entire friend group hung out all yeah. at once. So crazy. Yeah, it's weird how like that time just flew by. I know. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna put some photos of us so they can oh see. Oh my god. I'm gonna be embarrassed, photos. but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeeb, Jai Wolf, AO's, uh, AO Beats, Andrew. He's alright. <laughs> um, uh, who, el- who else did we meet on that trip? Aylin, Prince Fox. All of us kind of met in the span of the same. All, well, I became friends with all of them all in the span of like the same few months. Mm-hmm. As soon as as soon as Hotel Garuda started touring, and as soon as me and Chris were spending more of our time uh, on the weekends touring, it became quickly apparent to me that I had a lot more friends than I d- did have just at school. Like all these people I, who I knew online through SoundCloud or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, all just became really good friends of mine. So you're originally born in Mumbai. Yes, born in Mumbai. I lived in I lived there only until I was two. Um, and then my family moved to the south of India to Bangalore, now known as Bengaluru, is the traditional name. And I lived there till I was around, I think nine, so fourth, third grade. I think I left at the end of third grade and moved to Singapore. Um, I was in Singapore until halfway through fifth grade. And my family moved again to Indonesia, uh, and then I was there until I was in my freshman year of high school. So that's actually where Manila Killa and I met. It was in seventh seventh grade in Indonesia. So we go back a lot further than we might care to admit sometimes. <laughs> um, like he's, we've had play dates before. We had <laughs> yeah, play dates like we children. Yeah, I wish I had pictures of that because that would be more That'd embarrassing be so to him cute. than it would be to me because he was doing backflips and shit. <laughs> Sorry, you can bleep me out. Um, <laughs> and you guys were doing community basketball together. Yeah, we had, we were on the same basketball team. You know how like there's like a, a what is it a little league? Yeah, yeah. Same the same sort of thing that you would do when like kids from your school and like other schools yeah. would join this like after school rec league for soccer or basketball or anything. Chris and I were on the same team and I remember distinctly losing every single game except one that year. (laughs) Every single game we lost and the last game of the season we tied because the opposing team made a basket like right as the game ended. So we didn't win any we didn't win any games but we didn't lose every single one. (laughs) Small victories. (laughs) What do your parents do? Uh, My dad works for Citibank and my mom's at home. She's a former economics teacher so um, my dad works in credit risk management in Citibank, and my mom used to teach economics at the University of Mumbai before yours truly came along. <laughs> um, and she was actually teaching for like the first few months that I was born to, like she would bring me to oh, class wow. and stuff a couple of times. And your dad was playing a lot of, was it classic rock or? Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I grew up on. He was, uh, there was a TV on the I on, know, on just the completely flat. Be right back. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I was younger, my dad played a lot of Pink Floyd, a lot of Ellen Parsons Project, um, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, uh, Deep Purple were all big, big parts of my, or big, big memories that I have 
of when I was younger are tied to like music like that. How did he even? Was that common to listen to that type of music in Mumbai? It wasn't. Honestly, it wasn't super That's common. surprising. But because his dad also traveled a lot for work, they had some kind oh. of. They had a lot of cosmopolitan uh, experiences when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. Like my dad's dad used to work for Air India. So his job also uh, afforded him to travel a lot and travel a lot for work. Actually, when when my dad graduated high school, you know how like when you graduate high school, you move away for college? Yeah. So like when my dad graduated high school, his parents moved out of the country because my dad, my, his, my granddad got posted out for work. Oh. So his, my dad's parents moved to Hong Kong while he stayed in Mumbai. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he essentially was living the life of a young bachelor in college, which must have been really cool. Uh, I don't know anything about that. I've never... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think his his upbringing was also fairly cosmopolitan. He had he he traveled a lot, quite a bit over uh, all over the world, so he I think was familiar with arts and culture in other parts of the world. Whereas people his age in his in Mumbai probably may not have been as in tune with it. Mm -hmm. And, and he, actually, like that's yeah. probably like the earliest memories I have of listening to music were like Alan Parsons Project when I was like three four Whoa. years old. Yeah. So you think you got your creative side from him? Yeah, I think, I mean, yes and no. Um, both my parents are both like, uh, well, my mom was a former academic because like she went to school for economics. Her entire family is, um, they're all lawyers. So she was the only person that didn't do law. She went in for economics and commerce. My dad's family is all professional. They all work in, in business and finance um, and industry. So neither of them is particularly artistic but my mom has a, has a lovely singing voice. She always used to sing to me growing up. Um, and my dad was a big influence on the music I listened to. So my sense of musicality, sure, came from them, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, How my you, love for yeah. it. How do you describe yourself back then growing up? Um, like in high school? Definitely chubbier than I am now. <laughs> sure. the first time I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with being chubby. I just was a lot chubbier when I was a kid. Um, and I think the baby weight dropped off finally at like, <laughs> Halfway through college, dropped off. <laughs> was still baby weight. I played air guitar a lot. I would take like squash rackets and like tennis rackets and pretend to play guitar on them before I knew what guitars were and how to play them. That's actually like the imagery that I painted in my head was like me being a guitarist playing for an arena of like screaming people, like like the guitars from Guns N' Roses, like Slash, <laughs> like my earliest idols, right? And I guess that's kind of how I came into touch with music and like really developed a connection with it and that informed my personality because it kind of made me attach uh, attach memories and like specific points in my life with the music I was listening to at the time um, so I think my personality developed because of because of music definitely because I think it's easier to relate to someone when you understand what music they listen to yeah were you in the school were you good at school above average but never amazing um, <laughs> I think like if you if you count if you count like the world average mm -hmm. for the programs that I was I did IB the International Same. Baccalaureate right which oh man I have flashbacks every time I think about it but <laughs> as as per the world average I feel like I was a little bit above average that for my school average I was like not quite there <laughs> sorry mom sorry dad <laughs> and I mean the the people in the the kids in the school next door to ours were like the top one percent oh, wow. of all IB candidates in the world. Um, so there was a lot of academic competition. And to be honest, I always had to be, like my parents always like pushed me to do better in school. But unless I really wanted to do it, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I would, I mean, I would only really like try to get grades because I wanted to impress them. I didn't, grades never really like, 
I should I should choose my words carefully here because <laughs> I, I don't know who's going to be watching this. But <laughs> I don't think I don't think grades were the ultimate like be all and end all for what I wanted to represent me. Mm-hmm. I don't think report cards tell you everything you need to know about a person the same way that like transcripts don't tell you everything about a college applicant yeah you know what i mean yeah so true was it difficult moving around so much um or do you think you're at the time no at the time i don't think i recognized it at the time but like looking back on it now yes there were definitely like adjustment periods like when i first moved from india to singapore um hearing accents spoken accents that weren't indian Mm-hmm. really threw me for a loop. Hearing hearing accents that are spoken that were not like regular Indian people accents, which by the way, Indian accents are like very like pleasing to the ear. Yeah. They're not like what you what you see on TV all the time. Um, but hearing accents for the first time was really weird. Um, hearing like English and Australian and, and Scottish kids and like American kids, and people from all over the world. Um, yeah, I speak totally differently now than, when I, than how I did when I was growing up going to school with a lot of British kids and then a lot of American kids and then a lot of British kids again and then moving to college in America. Um, I feel like that was like one of the, the big like shocks for me, moving around a lot growing up, was just like ch- people's accents changing all the time and not knowing like where exactly I fit in that spectrum of accents mm-hmm. or like who, who was like closer or further away from my sort of cultural comfort zone, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why did you study? Why do you decide to study economics and was it math? Um, yeah, economics and math. I mean, it was kind of economics. I've always, I've always had a passion for it. Like since I was in, since I was like 12 or 13, I always had an interest in it. Like my dad's party trick when he was growing, when I, when I was like really little, he would teach me to memorize the, the GDP per capita or like the GDP uh, of any country, and he would whip it out at parties. He would be like, "Assume what's the GDP of Japan?" I was like. And I would tell him, I don't remember the number now, I would tell him and his friends would be super impressed. Oh my gosh. I'd be like, here I am. <laughs> I'm the party trick, I'm the kid that's, oh my that doesn't even know how to put his own pants on yet, but he knows the GDP of Japan. <laughs> oh my <laughs> so God. I, kind of, I kind of had a familiarity with it uh, growing up. Cause my, my dad and all of his friends, um, a lot of his friends worked in, in finance too. So I was kind of surrounded by that world. Plus my mom was a former economics professor, so I guess you could say it's in my blood, mm-hmm. kind of. So I knew very early on that I wanted to study that. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with it, with a degree in economics. And I thought, you know, sort of in college, I thought I wanted to do um, investment banking. And then I realized I'm not nearly good enough at math uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then sort of I, I kind of leaned towards the more creative parts of it or the more the less sort of obvious parts of uh, the finance industry, like advertising and marketing and product placement and product management, product design. And I did an internship at Citibank um, in Singapore between my sophomore, either between my junior and senior year or sophomore and junior years of college. And, you know, they say, they say internships teach you a lot, but I think they teach you more about what you don't want to do than what yeah. you do want to do. So I think spending, is that a wig? I know. Um, it's just a pile of hair on the floor. It was so gross when I was walking past. Um, I think doing that internship helped me come to terms with what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. And I think it made me realize that I didn't really want to be um, working in a bank or working in finance. Do you think if it wasn't for music, you would still do business, though? Probably. Yeah. yeah. If uh, I think if I hadn't started DJing at all in college, I probably would be working at a ba- working in a bank or like working in a like a financial yeah. organization wow. by now. <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. 
And then you reached out to Manila Killer because you saw his mashups. Yeah, so he, so, so I remember when Manila Killer and I were, were friends in school, I think a couple of years after that, we added each other on Facebook because I think Facebook happened for me around eighth grade. Yeah. Um, and like all of my friends around eighth and ninth grade, we all like added each other and you know, that, that became its own, its own thing. And I remember he would post about this page, Manila Killer, which I thought was the cutest name. I thought it was <laughs> such a cool name. <laughs> And I would always like like his posts and like you know share his mashups Aww. and stuff. And I was very proud of him. Still am, for the record, Christian. <laughs> um, and eventually, I I noticed that he was like making his own remixes and like actually producing and and uh, being more involved and more hands on with it. And I just first off, I thought it was really impressive and I thought it was really cool that he was sharing that side of him because honestly, if you're if you're a college kid that comes from an Asian background, there's very little likelihood that you get a chance yeah. to express yourself freely like that. And I think in the middle of our, my sophomore year or my junior year, I was, I was living, I was staying on campus during winter break and Chris and I were like talking about the hard summer recap videos by Glenn Jamin. We used to watch them all so the time, good. I still do. Um, <laughs> all the videos of Justice and Boys Noise and you know, uh, Mr. Oizo and Kavinsky, all those people who were like, seemed like heroes, like really like idols at the time. Chris and I really bonded over that, or Manila Killer and I really bonded over that at the time. I told him, I had mentioned that I had an interest in making music. I always wanted to do that growing up, but I never t sort of took initiative to do it by myself. And I forget who's, I forget if it was his idea or my idea to do something together, but we, First, for the first idea we had to do something together was to throw a night in DC, or like to do a to do a, a party in DC. Because I knew he lived there. I lived in LA at the time. I still, I mean, obviously I still live here, but he was in DC at the time, still in college. We wanted to throw a party and have some cool SoundCloud DJs DJ it. And then we realized what it actually took to throw a party. We were like, <laughs> we can't afford this. <laughs> I remember talking to the venue uh, that we wanted to we wanted to throw this event at, and they were like, yeah, the deposit will be two thousand dollars. I was like. I don't, I don't have that money, man. I'm sorry. Like, I don't have money like that to just give you a deposit. Um, and so that idea got shelved really quickly, even though we were both so excited about it at the time. And then a few days after that, maybe a little, maybe about a month after that, um, we, I think we were talking about like white, we were talking about white noise, the song by Disclosure. Mm -hmm. And we were looking, he said he was looking for an acapella, I think. And... I was like, yeah, it would be fun to remix that song. And he said, I think it was either him or I that said, why don't we do it together? And like, just make, make it its own thing or like make some music together. And that's how it started, January 15th, 2014. Wow, that remix is so good, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and how did it get picked up or how? Oh my God, I remember this like it was yesterday. Like, wow. I was, I think when, by the, day, by the time it got released, I was in... I don't know if I was, do I remember like it was yesterday? I don't know. Um, I forget if I was in Singapore, if I was back at home in Singapore, or if I was in LA when this actually went down, but when we released the first song, when we released the White Noise remix, Brett had shared it, or Brett, our manager, had shared it into a Facebook group that, that uh, Nick, who founded This Song Is Sick, was part of, and Nick posted it, and then it just caught fire right away, and I was just, I was blown away. First of all, I was I had this momentary future like flash forward where I would be like, this is what I wanted to do all along. This is literally what I've wanted to do my entire life, but I just didn't know it mm -hmm. until it manifested itself in front of me and with with Chris's help, Chris's help 
it manifested itself. Um, what year are you, were you in college when that happened? This is between, uh, this is in the middle of my junior year. Okay. Um, so this is like winter break my junior year. I was working as a photographer for a blog and I was shooting concerts um, and events here in LA. Or just like, I would, I would literally just be able to, I, would, I only just asked for f photo passes so I could go to these concerts, really. My like, life. let's be honest here. <laughs> That's what I was doing. <laughs> So I could go to these passes, so I could go to these places and like take pictures of these DJs who I looked up to so much. And eventually, the transition happened from being from being a photographer to being a DJ. And then there was a, a shift in how people treated me and how I how I interacted with people. And it really fulfilled me knowing that I was doing something that resonated with other people, and that something that I that something that me and and my my close friend were making just out of our heads, just like manifesting it out of thin air would be so widely appreciated and, and just not even not, not necessarily like appreciated and talked about in a good way but just consumed and like heard by people outside of my immediate social circle that's like still the most surreal thing to me is that every time we go to these festivals and we're DJing in front of all these people I don't know any of them they're just there because they heard some of our music and they thought it was cool so they're paying money to see us play more music okay <laughs> cool <laughs> like Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Was Manila Killa making most of the music early on? Yeah, definitely. Like he was, he was definitely the driving force on the laptop for the first, but I'd say the first year and a half, two years. Um, and you know, it took me a long time to come to terms with the idea that it's not all about being a laptop wizard. Um, it's okay to be, you know, more on the. It's it's okay to be less hands-on if you have to be. If you have to be if you have to be less hands-on to make your point and to make your creative vision come across, that's okay. Like you have to swallow your ego a little bit and accept that other people might be better at what you're trying to. Uh, might be a, sorry. You have to accept that other people might be uh, express shortcuts to get across to your destination faster than you might be able to do it if you were doing it by yourself. Mm. And. That's something that me, me and Chris have this amazing chemistry, I think, like, um, as long as we work together, we've always had this, like, dynamism between us where we can kind of put ideas across to each other and act on them, and both of us kind of get a feel for what each other are thinking for the song or this idea or this remix or anything. And it was always really nice to have someone else who you could trust to put your, to put the song's interest first and to put the creative piece and put the art first. And anytime we would have disagreements or anytime we would have uh, conf not even conflict, conflict is it's too bad a word. Like we never even had like arguments really. <laughs> like the most civil disagreements of, of all time probably. Um, even whenever we had disagreements we were able to resolve them really quickly because Chris and I have such a big overlap in our taste in music that when we're pointing out references to each other it's easy for the other person to get what the other person's saying. It wasn't until much later that I really felt comfortable in my own skin to produce music on my own and I think the time that Chris and I spent together working on some on, on Garuda together rather we I think he first of all helped me grow in confidence in myself mm -hmm. as a musician and as a producer as an artist because really I didn't have anything to fall back on in terms of classical training or you know in terms of formal schooling that would tell me that I that I'm good at this really I was just winging it and learning on the fly, learning as I went. And I'll be honest with you, at some point, at sometimes it definitely felt like I was faking it till I made it. Mm -hmm. And 
it's I guess it's called imposter syndrome, yeah, yeah. right? Like if you feel if you feel like you're you're not actually doing what you're supposed yeah. to be doing. That's interesting. You're actually not the first Really? Producer. Yeah, Gasly actually had that before, I think. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly yeah. I feel exactly the same way. It's like I I definitely felt the times that I was useless or like I wasn't carrying my weight or I wasn't um, contributing enough or contributing important enough things to the discussion or to the uh, to the art. And you know, I got to give it up to Chris. That's my brother for life. Manila Killer is my my dude. <laughs> and he basically was always the the person to tell me to stay strong and like to keep my head down and like grind it out on Ableton, learn more, learn more, learn more, always just keep doing more. And I mean, honestly, without him, I wouldn't be here nowadays. Or like, without, without wow. him, I wouldn't be here where I am. So, I really have him to thank for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the push and initial initial sort of drive that he gave me to start a career in music. And what was the turning point for the split? The split. Um, I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even like a like an, a disagreement or like an argument or anything mm -hmm. that led to it. It's just because Chris and I both. Or Manila Killer has his own solo act that is fairly is quite popular, and he, like any other act, wants to tour and you know play shows, and it's it's not possible for him to be in two places at once. Yeah. And <laughs> when you're a duo, people expect you to DJ as a duo. And even though for a long time I was uh, I was doing all the shows by myself, people would ask me like, where where is he? Like, where is why is he not here? I'm like, well. He can't be in two places at once. I'm like, I'm sorry, he's not. He's not a magician. <laughs> like, and then we, and then after he finished college, after he graduated, we started doing all the shows together, and then that was going well for a long time. And eventually, it got to a point where both Hotel Garuda and Manila Killer were touring so heavily that, a, it was, it was just honestly, I wouldn't have been, if even if I was him, I wouldn't want to do it. Like, I wouldn't want to be able, I wouldn't want to have to like cons constantly tour two acts at the same time yeah. where the expectations and the vibes are so different that you kind of have to be two people at the same time. I didn't want to put him in that position. Both of us wanted to push each project to its potential. And Chris and I both, I mean, still were like very good friends. He still, we, we were literally hanging out yesterday. <laughs> and every time we hang out, we still catch up over music and talk about what's new, what we're digging, like what we're working on. And it's funny. We still have a lot. Of, we still have a lot of overlap in like what we what we like and what we're making. It's like it's weird. Like I think every every like three four months we'll like sit down for more than t ten minutes or whatever when when we're like playing the same show or play in the same city and stuff. We'll be like talking to each other about what we want to do for visuals and like what we want to do for art and stuff. And so often it's like the same thing. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's I like love we just that. we have so much similarity in our ideas. Just like the execution comes out a little different. The when when he the way he vision the way he envisions it and I envision it are quite similar, but the way he executes things are different to how the way he executes things is different to how I want to execute them. Mm. So in a way, the split was like it was good for both of us to be able to enjoy creative freedom, and for for me first of all to like get an experience of what it's like to have creative control over something 100%. Mm -hmm. What was the decision to sign to Mom and Pop? Um, so Sajib Jai Wolf is, uh, is also with Mom and Pop Records and when I was talking to him around the time he did his first EP, uh, he only had good things to say about them. I know their, the rest of their roster is incredible as well. Duke Dumont, yeah. uh, Flume, Sunflower Bean, um, just to name a few, but they have a, a really sick roster of 
talented artists who I think you can instantly associate what each artist does with a vibe or with an emotion, with a, with a feeling that the person evokes before you even listen to their music. Which is interesting. I always, I never thought that I would have to be the, per I would be the person that, you know, people would name and you could think of what emotion that music gives mm. you. I never thought I would be that person, but I really want to be that person. Yeah. <laughs> so when we first, when we first uh, showed our demos to mom and pop, when, when Manila Killa and I were, were still working together, um, we were, I wasn't even expecting them to, to like engage in us t to begin with, because I thought they were just way too cool for us at first. Um, and they, were, they responded like quite enthusiastically, even though the demos we showed them initially are like never, a lot of them never came out and never will see the light of day, but just to, just to show that they had an idea of what we were trying to achieve and had a, an appreciation for our taste and our perspective on music was really, really cool. And they've been amazing to work with since, mm -hmm. since the start. And then I was reading a previous interview and I found it so funny because people always confuse you and... Me and Sajid. Yeah, but the fact that when you were at his show and someone thought that you were... Yeah, like, I, I don't, <laughs> honestly, besides the, besides the fact that we both have brown skin, I don't think Sajib, I don't think Jai Wolf and I look at all alike. And I think it's like, it's a, it's a funny like inside joke. We actually have t-shirts, both of, there's only two of them in existence. <laughs> what? Say Asim or Sajib, there's only two of them. But I guess maybe someday if we do a back-to-back -back at a live set, or back to back at a festival or something, that would be funny to like make shirts for that occasion and just give them out to yeah. fans. That would be really funny. <laughs> but people actually got really confused sometimes. Like people thought he was me, people thought I was him. Like at our own shows. Yeah, like he, like literally Jai Wolf was playing. So Jai Wolf was playing. He was literally playing a set and somebody comes up and he's like, why aren't you up there? And I was like, well, the, fuck? the question should answer itself, my guy. Like, <laughs> just look up. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> How do you say your style of music has changed since the early songs you made? Um, let's see. I mean, Chris and I both have such a big appreciation for pop music and pop songwriting mm -hmm. that our music has always been melody-driven. It's always had a, an element of being able to sing along to something. Mm. And that's something that I wanted very early on that my favorite songs when I was a kid gave me. is like the feeling of euphoria when you sing along to a song you know the words by heart to. And from the beginning we had that ethos and we've always sort of embodied that in our music and our, just our production styles have changed to reflect our taste in music changing um, over the time. And <clears throat> I think going forward, like since the split, I've definitely had to do some creative soul searching for a while to figure out really what I wanted to do with the project and what I wanted to use to make my mark as a solo artist. And while I still have tremendous appreciation for for uh, pop and mainstream songwriting, I think I'm leaning away from that sound a little bit. Mm. Um, I want to show my appreciation for darker, more moody, more uh, a little less obvious than what you might expect from pop dance to be. Um, I wouldn't say my new music is going to be pop per se. There, there's definitely going to be songs that I make, but there's also going to be tracks. The difference between songs and tracks being like if you're, this might sound really snobby, but I feel like a song is something you put on to listen to, but a track is something you put on to like DJ. Mm. Or like a tra I think the diff a common uh, divider of the two is like, would you want to listen to this in the car on the way to work or whatever? 
Or would you want to do, or would you want, like, want to be at a club and hearing this and just losing your mind? Or both. You know, the song can be a track as well. But I think towing the line is, is important too and like having, uh, having a balance between the two. So that's what I'm doing with my, with my, new, uh, with my new work, with my project, is uh, trying to create a narrative and show that my taste in music is more than just banging drops. What do you have coming up? Uh, so I'm going on tour in two weeks. February 8th is the first day. Washington DC, you're up first. I'm going on tour all across the US. I'm playing two hour sets. Um, I'm playing a lot of tech house, a lot of techno, a lot of weird club music that um, I've been discovering over the last seven, eight months. Nice. And I'm really excited to give people an idea of what is going on in my head as far as making music and what, uh, what playing music means to me now and what it continues to mean to me. What would you say have been your biggest challenges so far in life? In, wow, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> my biggest challenges ever. One of them, learning Ableton. <laughs> learning Ableton has been really, really, really hard. I say has been, but I mean, I'm still, let's be real here, we're all still learning Ableton. <laughs> we're all learning every single day. That's something I enjoy about it greatly. I think swallowing, swallowing your ego and swallowing mm -hmm. your pride is really difficult to do in this industry where you're, you're around so many fluffed up egos and so many people who are constantly reminded that they are the best, that they are the mm. one, they are the, the alpha and the omega of what it means to be a musician or what it means to be a DJ or whatever. Sometimes you have to sit back and realize it's not about, it's not about them, it's not about me. It's about how the, the music that's made resonates with other people to, that, that consume it, that listen to it, that rely on it to make themselves feel happy. Like, out there there could be someone listening to one of our songs that's having a really shitty day that listening to my song or listening to one of my friend's songs made them happier. And that means more, honestly, that, that if somebody told me that, that one of my songs got them through a really shitty day in their week, that would mean more to me than playing for a, a giant stage or mm. playing for like, like 10,000 people or whatever. 10, 000, playing for 10,000 people would be cool too, don't <laughs> get me wrong. I would love to do that. But I'm just saying it's, it's, you, have to, you have to understand that this art has a very personal impact on a lot of different people. And you never, you're never able to control how anyone's going to receive it. That's why, that's why I think like swallowing your ego is important because you have to detach yourself a little bit from the art. You have to make it less about you and more about the actual art itself. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Made sense in my head. Yeah. What does love mean to you? What does love mean to me? Yeah. Damn. Did you, were you prepared to ask me that? Yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Um, love is friendship. Love is respect. Love is unconditional friendship and respect. I think... Man, I've, I've, been, I've never had to answer that question before. So, I need to take a second to figure that out. <laughs> I feel like it's support unconditionally. Mm. Even when you... When someone's at their lowest point, you have to be able to... Like, like, it's, like, it, you know, like I said earlier, not make it about you. You have to be able to remove yourself from the equation and understand that people have their own emotions and people have their own feelings that need addressing. And love means being able to put your own bullshit aside to help someone with their problems and vice versa. Last question, what do you want to be remembered for? Not being Sajib, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be remembered as the guy whose taste in music is so sick that he got a bunch of people together to make amazing music and DJed. <laughs> for eight hours at a time and played all <laughs> kinds of music. I mean, people know, if you've seen me DJ before, yeah. 
you know that I don't just play, I don't just play house. I don't just play anything. I have an appreciation for all kinds of things and given the right setting, I want to be known as the guy who you can count on to DJ anywhere, anytime, <laughs> any place. I feel like I already kind of, this might sound a little snooty again, I feel like I kind of already have that reputation because I go back to back to DJ with all of I my friends. I know this, I know this. And all of my friends are like, how do you have all this music? Like, how do you have future house and then future bass and then also like this weird like techno and tech house and like kind of all across the board. I want to be remembered as the guy who had an appreciation for everything all across the board and was able to curate vibes based on what needed applying for that day, for that set. <laughs> yeah, I love that. This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. Bye.